Welcome to the Stack and Sats podcast presented by Four Space Mining. I am your host, Paul Mikovacic. In this episode, I'll be speaking with Michael Kirsanov, a Web3 developer currently working on a decentralized digital rights management project. In this episode, we discuss the philosophy of blockchain, what it means to be human in the face of disruptive technology, and much more. As always, this is not financial advice. Please enjoy my conversation with Michael Kirsanov. I'm just really appreciative to have you in the studio today, the Four Space Mining Studio. Um, Michael Kirsanov, for everyone in the audience who doesn't know you, um, if you just wanted to introduce yourself and say a little bit about what you do. Yeah, so um, yeah, so I'm Michael Kirsanov. Um, it's really interesting because uh, I don't think I really have like a, a very linear history of like, you know, the things, I mean, from the outside, it doesn't look like it makes a lot of sense, but it makes sense to me. Um, I studied, it's funny because I studied undergraduate finance and took on a very big entrepreneurial streak, um, you know, when I was in college. So um, I would do things like, you know, uh, polymer engineering and cosmetics. And I would uh, do like uh, some like hardware design and like inkless printing and stuff like that. And understandings like, what can I... Um, what can I do if, uh, to like innovate stuff? You know, it's like that, it's like that youthful um, desire to like create something that's impactful. And what's interesting is um, uh, at, uh, at a certain time while I was studying finance, there opened up two labs on, on campus, which were both were in disrupt, uh, one was in disrupt technologies. So AI, IoT, blockchain. And the other one was in augmented reality, virtual reality. So AR, VR, et cetera. And the really interesting thing is um, I would say that my, uh, my combined approach became how do I uh, how do I take like the business savvy of like finance and entrepreneurship, et cetera, and apply it to new and disruptive technologies. Mm. So I'd say like even before then, I started out um, I started out doing like uh, mining ops with my brother for you know a good degree. This was you know out of high school, 2013, 2014, et cetera. And uh, I was thinking to myself is like, hey, this is this is pretty neat, but you know, obviously, because, you know, you're, you're relatively young at that time, you're figuring out still what you want to do. Um, I put that down for a little bit. So, um, yeah, over the course of, uh, uh, over the course of what I've done, uh, I would say is, uh, I started out doing disrupt technology research, basically at, at university. And I started pivoting a lot into, um, a lot into like augmented reality, virtual reality, uh, as a, um, and just a means of expression as a means of, uh, how we, uh, as a means of how we interact with information as humans, but also at the same time, I was, um, one of my main research topics while I was in the disrupt technologies lab was, uh, on chain education credentialing. So for example, how could you prove that you took a certain class or you took a certain course or you learned something in a certain way and how to use the power of blockchain? Um, just in general to uh, help facilitate that. So a lot of interdisciplinary stuff that really culminated into um, and really culminated into things like, okay, can I tinker with creating my own currency? Can I tinker with creating um, my own tracking system? Can I tinker with creating my own uh, spatial data views in augmented reality? Um, and obviously those are the disrupt technology pieces, not talking about any of like the the physical entrepreneurial or like the, the other, like it's not really disruptive, but not software really related uh, innovation. So uh, I could say that's my background in that sense. It's yeah. Well, 
we're going to have a really interesting episode here, Michael, because uh, I have a bit of a dilemma going on. This en- is enlighten me. Uh, I mean, in life in general, but in terms of us sitting here, you know, this is a stack and sats podcast and I am, you know, someone who works in the Bitcoin mining industry. I'm someone who navigates as generally a Bitcoin maxi. Um, and you know, this is a big undertaking is running the show and having the right people on to talk about Bitcoin, et cetera. But the thing with Bitcoin is it touches so many aspects of just how life works in general that I really don't like and appreciate the closed minded idea that it's only about Bitcoin, that everything else doesn't matter. Because if we're talking about just currency, yes, I think currency wise, Bitcoin, the digital gold standard is what I support in the way we need to go. But in terms of understanding the future of the technology and the innovation that's coming, it's not just Bitcoin. Bitcoin is one piece of this. And as I'm exploring how to do the podcast best, you know, besides being my number one critic, I want to make sure that everyone who I'm addressing in the audience um, really gets to see who I am and what it is I want to do. So while I have this dilemma, I think the only answer to it is to put my head down, to speak with everyone who I think is interesting, who has really interesting um, concepts to bring to the table. And that's not going to necessarily be Bitcoin 24-7. So I I, I just want to let you know the dilemma because it is something that has been racing in my head, kind of getting ready for this episode. I think it's not... um, It's not invalid whatsoever that uh, that sort of thought process it's actually taking on a very multidisciplinary approach i would say is um how do you take you can't take any component in isolation and expect to be able to critique it that way everything exists in context of you know something else right um and it actually uh, it actually goes back to like the interdisciplinary research that i was doing is you know, I had to take context of, okay, what does blockchain do? But what could it do theoretically in the context of business, in the context of art, in the context of art, of science or, mm. you know, any other application? So um, uh, I would call it a very good dilemma to have to understand is like, how can we uh, broaden the applications of, um, of, you know, a technology and infrastructure and uh, have it apply to many things? Because um, that's how you 100x an audience is how can you make it apply to everyone in some way, shape, or form and uh, have it be as ubiquitous as um, if you ask someone, hey, did you go on Robinhood and buy crypto? Not, not sponsored. I don't recommend that, by the way. Um, you know, probably if you ask any average American that, you'll probably have a very sm- uh, like a, sm- a small percentage of them that say, yes, I did versus the overwhelmingly ubiquitous amount of people would say, have you used the internet today? You know, everyone will say probably yes. So it really is an argument for like, um, uh, I'd say it really is an argument for how do you, uh, how do you position blockchain or how do you position all the, uh, all the current technologies that are being used today relative to blockchain as like absolutely necessary for your average person. 100%. And I think, you know, when we spoke over the phone briefly, you are the, 
you are one of the people who I want to navigate through that conversation with. Um, from my perspective, the big skepticism for Bitcoin maxis and people who support, you know, uh, Bitcoin in general is that when people talk about decentralization and they talk about blockchain, um, a lot of these cryptocurrencies doing so altcoins are more or less bringing a marketing kind of structure to it. And they're not being honest and truthful with the audience. And I think that's something that uh, together we can really bridge the gap to explain that there is nuance to the idea of what can blockchain infrastructure do, for example, or how is AR and VR going to coincide with a future of a digital financial system? Absolutely. Absolutely. And actually, one of the first things that I, um, that I, one of the first things I ever bring up in any conversation with anyone that's either new to crypto or trying to figure it out, is it, is it a good thing to get into? Is it a bad thing to get into? I try to divorce the idea of currency and the volatility that may come with financial markets and risk, et cetera, um, and the actual infrastructure. Because when you have an internet-enabled currency, you are taking the summation of every global finance risk that you could, like, for example, if you were to, uh, let's use a traditional finance example. If you were trying to calculate the volatility of the Australian dollar to the British pound, that already has some intrinsic volatility that you're going to be dealing with, right? Mm -hmm. Take that summation for every single currency that exists in every country and you have like the, uh, the volatility of like what cryptocurrency is seen because it's available and accessible to everyone over the internet. It's a very large paradigm shift that if you have an internet connection, you can participate in a global economy with mm -hmm. global volatility, which does turn a lot of people off because now suddenly... Um, that volatility has not, uh, it, not all the information has been factored in yet because people are still adjusting to like what internet current, magic internet money, quote unquote, actually means, right? Yeah. Um, but then we look at the other side and say, currency is just one factor. It's just one, you know, it's a, it's a large one. It's what people know blockchain to be used for, but it's not the only factor. And I think that's the really important part is when you're talking about uh, when you're talking about no central entity controlling a flow of information, I think that becomes really powerful, especially one of the most powerful things that have been applied is, is the currency part. But when you're talking about things like um, everything from uh, self-custody data to what I'm doing right now, digital rights management, um, how do you, for example, uh, how do you truly own assets? How do you truly... Uh, have provenance of something? How do you, uh, or, you know, how can you prove that you probably uh, owned uh, owned something? Medical records that can now transcend borders. Um, information that is no longer, um, you no longer have to worry about go, uh, companies storing your third party data. You bring your own authentication. You bring your own data um, in that sense. Um, I think what the blockchain is, is an exercise in self-trust, is that we don't have to trust anyone it's it's a trustless system inherently, and the only people that we should be able to fundamentally like trust in that sense um, should first and foremost be ourselves, and then we can assign additional trust wherever else we need it. Um, it's also solving the principal agent problem, which is can you really trust someone to act in your own best interest? Can you trust someone else to act in your own best interest? Mm -hmm. In finance, you have financial advisors that act as fiduciaries. This is the reason why 
they need to act in your own best interest because you signed an agreement with them. Not every company in the world, not every organization you work with has a fiduciary duty to you that is expressly outlined for that purpose. So blockchain really does serve to um, bring back that notion of uh, that notion of like you are your own, you know, you are your own source of custody in that sense. So whether it's your data, whether it's your privacy, whether it's um, in in uh, the case that I'm working with, whether it's your content, um, if you're working in medical field, if it's your records. And for example, if I wanted to go to Europe and I was started working with a doctor there, there's already a lot of friction, be, you know, inside a medical system in America. But imagine transferring everything over to a healthcare system in another region. And now you have additional layers of complexity that shouldn't fundamentally be there, but could be solved with a universal single source of truth. And I think that's, uh, that's the thing is you can, uh, anything that needs a universal single source of truth is where that infrastructure really comes to play. So that's, that's the way that to sum it all up is the way that I like to divorce those two. I think it's fantastic. Uh, the divorce idea. I think it's a, uh, it's a good way to get the idea out of people's heads that this is something to make you rich. This is something to give you, you know, infinite resources and really just talk about the concepts, the ideas of people like you, whose brains are spinning when they're thinking about all this. Uh, you had mentioned that a lot of this comes you know, the, the introduction of blockchain and self-custody of your data comes from this idea of uh, needing to, you know, uh, do it yourself because you have a lack of trust and a lack of faith in uh, the third parties who are doing so. What is it about our world that we've come to this point where people are so turned off by the idea of having, you know, a central authority that it's their job and their duty is to protect your information and your privacy. I think there's a, um, that's a very, that's a very, yeah, that's a big question that, um, I'll put it to you this way. We as humans are generally reactive, not proactive. Mm -hmm. We tend to respond to things only when it really negatively affects us. Um, so taking precautions is not something, is something that, um, not every person does intrinsically. They will instead assign those precautions to someone else. Can you take these precautions for me? Which is a sort of like, you know, it's a question of do you trust, you know, do you trust someone else to take precautions better than you can? Which I think becomes, um, I think starts to go into like an, uh, an education issue, right? Mm. But also at the same time, not every person and their parents can like self-host to like, you know, entire email servers. Oh, I don't trust, you know, like I don't trust Google. So I'm going to go and host my own email server. Um, not every person can do that. So that's where um, you have, you know, you have companies like Google and DigitalOcean, AWS, et cetera, saying we'll host your email, we'll host your applications, we'll host everything you need um, to run your business logic, to run your life, et cetera. Twitter, you can log in and you can communicate with your friends or, you know, shit post online, et cetera. And it's completely fine. Um, so I think it's, it's like, how much trust are we willing to put in others versus like a fundamental distrust? And I think um, uh, people are very trusting until something bad happens. And I think that's, uh, there's been enough bad happening, especially you know, in the past like decade, everything start, uh, everything going from the Equifax breach to the entire source code of Twitch being leaked and everything else like that, which, um, you know, and monetization numbers and stuff being like personal, you know, everything being, it really calls into question, like 
how much can you trust someone else to hold on to your data, your life, you know, all of that for you. And that, um, raising kind of like the minimum level of competency of uh, people up. It's actually, um, I, have a, I have an interesting uh, thought process on that where um, over time people become more baseline competent in like, how do, you, uh, how do you either run your own services or how do you begin interacting in a more um, privacy secure manner? Like, for example, GDPR, right? Is like, uh, if you are a company interacting with any part of Europe, you have to comply with GDPR um, for, you know, data regulations, data privacy, et cetera. And what is GDPR exactly? Um, it, is, um, it is the data, uh, the acronym escapes me right now, but it's essentially... Um, it's a reg- it's a regulation that Europe has introduced in order to um, explicitly define how companies can use your data within what scope and to what degree and extent. It's funny I know the actual content of it. I <laughs> Names are always a thing, um, but essentially a company has to expressly outline what the data is going to be used for, how long it's going to be in their custody and possession, and that you at any time have the right to revoke it. You have basically with express writing to them saying, hey, get rid of all my data. I don't want to leave a footprint anywhere in your services. Which, when you think about it, is something that we in America, we don't really default to here, you know, in terms of like companies. If you wanted to go and write a letter to Twitter saying, hey, delete all my data, especially now, that'd probably be an issue. Right? <laughs> um, so that's, uh, that's, the, that's the big problem with that. No, totally. And in America, where we are just, you know, at the highest level of uh, just like wanting to make money. Um, you've really seen this issue with people's privacy and their data just being sold all over the place, whether it's for political reasons, um, whether it's for, you know, marketing and advertising. Um, the one that scares me the most is for future advertising of generations ahead of us. Um, a lot of what people don't realize with data mining is it's not necessarily to get you to click on the right thing at the right time. It's building up an idea of where, where is this group going to, you know, be in five, 10 years? What are they looking to buy then, you know, that we can market towards them or what are their children really interested in? So you see a lot of this data mining for these little phone apps and whatnot. Um, I mean, it's all, it's all alarming. And you think that there's this, you know, notion that we can't go back to it. And I think that's kind of what you're trying to say is like, no, not only can we, do we not have to go that route? Uh, but if we keep tapping into what we can do on a scale of protection, you know, um, that we can actually develop a world where not every single person, every single place is mining your data and looking to have you ask someone to take your data. Yeah, absolutely. It at least, at the very least, in my opinion, it should be a bilateral exchange, right? I mean, there's Teslas outside, right? Whenever we're driving, whenever we're driving our cars, that data is being sent back in some way, shape, or form to you know to HQ and being like, hey, this is where this person drives, in what atmospheric conditions. This is the sensor data that got picked up from it. And now we're using that to expand our own services. Also, by the way, they visited X, Y, and Z, so we can probably map their consumer behavior too. At the very least, I feel like if we are expanding the uh, the available suite of data 
that a company has, we should at least be getting paid for it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so it really, uh, it really is about like, how do we prevent ourselves from being, uh, it's kind of like, uh, it's not like 1984, like Orwellian, like you're predicting someone has fought crime before the, you know, before they actually, it's like you're predicting the probability of someone like thinking about something before they actually did it. Um, but instead it's like consumerism where you're predicting if someone wants something before they actually need it. And now you're pandering them, uh, to them a service, which is designed to extract them of all their economic resources. Yeah. And that's a sort of very scary thing because now you're seeing, uh, you're, you're seeing humans as a means to an end versus an actual like, uh, interaction in that sense. We want to optimize the algorithm so that this amount of discretionary income that a person has, we want to extract as much as we can for that through targeted ads, through, you know, an entire network of, of, um, subscription-based uh, services. Exactly. Yeah. And it, it becomes a very, a very harrowing notion when we realize that, um, all of these companies, it becomes harder and harder to pull like the actual plug on each one of them every day, because now everything is being hooked up. Twitch and prime are being you know, hooked up together as well. You know, it's, um, you know, it's just an example of like, if you take out one service, you're reducing the utility that you get as a consumer. And so it's, yeah, it's, it starts to get really difficult, um, for the average person to really disconnect themselves that way, unless we start looking at, um, what the future of services look like. And especially like what the future of like companies and autonomous services starts to look like. Well, you, uh, you mentioned privy photos a little bit ago, and I feel like we're kind of navigating into a bit of a conversation about, you know, social media. Um, and I guess I just want to hear a little bit more about privy exactly what it is. And, you know, I think it's a good example of a technology of blockchain technology being utilized, uh, for the content creators benefits. Yeah, absolutely. So Essentially, it's uh, so Privy Photos is essentially a digital rights management suite that allows people to uh, control and track their content online. So, if you are a content creator, uh, you are able to uh, you are able to track and control and revoke access to uh, controlled content. You're able to actually watermark and fingerprint in so that you understand. It's kind of like how directors they give each actor a different copy of the script to know that if it gets leaked, for example or if it exceeded the permissible scope of who has it, like for example, leaked nudes, um, you can tell exactly which actor or which person leaked that, uh, that specific information. So you can now, for example, automate recourse against, uh, against those actors. So at the very least, what blockchain does in that instance is you're able to have provenance. You're able to go back and automatically prove something. You don't need to have a massive dispute about what happened when. You don't need to conduct crazy forensics about it. It's all there on chain. And, you know, without like giving away proprietary information, like, uh, how exactly, you know, is Privy, is Privy managing that, I suppose? So it's pretty much all through like a series of decentralized smart contracts where, uh, and smart contracts are public by default, so it works that way. But, um, essentially just ways of, of, um, associating anonymous, like, just anonymous addresses with like, Hey, if you posted something, uh, this is now, this is now who owns it. But for example, if you have encrypted content online that only a recipient can decrypt right now, you're, it's like, you're keeping track of who received what at what time, to what degree, to 
what scope, et cetera, and uh, just helping facilitate that process. What really happens if a lot of like content workflows is um, can you post process information such a way that um, that it just gives them another layer of protection without them having to think too much about it. So, no, yeah. definitely. I mean, that's all extremely fascinating. I've spent some time uh, creating content on Twitter back in my younger days. Um, talking about shit posting, I definitely was doing something even more. Uh, <laughs> Let's be real. If you didn't do it before, were you really living? Seriously. I mean, we were doing, this was back in college. We we went even beyond the shit posting. We ran parody accounts um, on Twitter and like common white girl and all these random pages. And it was just a bunch of, you know, dudes in the dorm, just thinking of tweets going on Tumblr and posting tweets. And, um, you know, a lot of the times I would feel guilty because not all of my content was made by me and sometimes, and you just don't know when or why or how, but Twitter would retaliate and be like, Hey, you posted X, Y, Z's video. You know, you didn't credit them. Therefore we're blocking your page for a day. And I just feel like one it's on the internet. So it's public. So I think it's really hard to be able to say that you created this idea, you came up with this meme or this joke or whatever. But at the same time, I also felt like it wasn't fair for me to be able to populate, you know, my audience with this original idea and for there to not be any way for us to just be able to tie and give credit to the person who had, you know, originally posted it. Um, it's an absolute mess on the internet. Yeah, everything's unfiltered, unsorted, completely unattributed. Every single time you save uh, something new, it gets recompressed, rehashed, refiltered somewhere. It's um, and it all just becomes this giant heap of just content, right? And it's it's this mass like it's a very messy library of Alexandria that humanity has built up because now you you know who decides what's right and wrong, right? Who decides, I mean, you know, when I say right and wrong, I mean like who truly owns something, who's truly credited towards something. If a public opinion has arisen somewhere, where did it, where are the sources that it, uh, that it arose from? Academic sources, things like that. Mm. Um, yeah, it becomes really troubling. One of the, one of the thought processes that, I, uh, that I've had about AI recently, because it's, it's a very hot topic is, um, when an AI or a machine learning algorithm comes to a conclusion, understanding the sources of the information that it used to derive that conclusion, which I think is really, really important. Because if you have, a, if you have like, a, for example, ChatGPT saying, um, uh, uh, if you ask it for a, if you ask it for a response, it doesn't break, it could break down to an extent like how it came to that response but you don't actually get like the full on source material of each individual like component of it and how it uh, composited all of those together, um, which starts becoming really, really troubling because now you're relying on, it's kind of like how humans have a uh, memory. Every time you remember something, you're not actually remembering like the original memory, you're remembering the memory of the memory. So it gets fuzzier every single time and AI is even subject to that. So I think this is why blockchain actually ties in perfectly to that because now you have a perfect, immutable um, 
degradation immune kind of memory of what happened, when, who, what was the content, you know, et cetera. And uh, you're able to, uh, you're able to track it in that way. It's actually what prevents, I think, um, uh, yeah, with augmented reality and virtual reality and AI, both of these are very kind of like reality degrading services in that sense, right? Uh, both of them kind of like skew like what is an original source of truth? What is a single source of truth, et cetera? There's not really any parts of those there. But blockchain can help both of those because now suddenly you're realizing where your source of information are coming from and how they can interact with each other um, in a very understood way. Interesting. And yeah, I can definitely see how that, you know, would help an AI out because, you know, you ask an AI a question and how does it, like you said, exactly come to that answer? And one of the things you see with ChatGPT is the AI can be wrong. It can be wrong about a lot of really simple things like a mathematics problem. It just answers it incorrectly. Or, um, you know, if you want to get like deeper into trying to teach it some things, it, it doesn't have access to the entire internet. There's no way that it can just like automatically grab and pull and be able to process and then answer it for you, um, much like ourselves. I just like gaslighting it until it gives me an answer. <laughs> um, I, yeah, I, I did that with it recently. I was uh, I was hanging out with my roommate, and I was like, "Hey, have you heard of ChatGPT?" And just like showing him what we could do. And of course, my roommate Bruce has to ask like it an impossible question, and he's like, "Can you write me a poem about the Island Boys uh, in the style of Emily Dickinson?" Mm. And ChatGPT is like. Yeah, I can do that, but who are the island boys? <laughs> yeah. Um, even simple assertions like one plus one equals three, it will clap back at you and say, no, it's not. Um, you know, so it will try to prove things that it knows are simply like are by simple virtue, like logically wrong. But yeah, for more complex issues, um, it starts to become a really like, uh, it's a game of telephone at that point. So, mm -hmm. it, so it really does become important to see like where the information came from. Um, actually, something I've been, uh, I was essentially thinking about writing a feature letter to some of the researchers at OpenAI, which is, uh, could you essentially in every single response or answer, could you include some of the original like training data that it referenced in it just so that if you actually needed to, like for example, um, uh, if you needed to cite or source something, or if you needed to, uh, let's say that you're a researcher and you're messing with ChatGPT to try to get a composite answer on something, right? Or it spits out something that you never saw before. Like, how can you begin to, uh, how can you begin to even, from an academic standpoint, begin? Academia is another. About, <laughs> my gosh, there, there's a there's a lot of topics that uh, ChatGPT and AI in particular are covering. But yeah, it starts to get really messy because attribution is the fundamental cause here. Um, Without attribution, um, what do you mean by that? Attribution is like uh, you know where it came from, by who, when, etc. Without attribution, you don't have a single source of truth. Um, so anything that, for for all intents and purposes, um, unless it uh, unless it's completely logical, proven like a mathematical equation or everything else, everything that ChatGPT says, grain of salt, massive flakes of salt, big grains. And uh, my head is kind of spinning on what, what you're saying here is, uh, you know, this is ultimately what people uh, 
uh, praise about Bitcoin and about a block is it's answering three simple questions from who to who, what amount. Mm. Um, and it's just crazy to, you know, to take that idea beyond finance and it exists in literally every single explanation that we need to, to kind of just like, uh, answer, um, and, and then what, what you find is so difficult with that is, you know, it's, it's beyond, uh, currency and ledgers, you know, it's beyond forging and it's beyond, you know, gaslighting someone about a transaction. No, we're moving to this point where, you know, I personally say, if I can't see it with my two eyes, it, it doesn't exist. And as we dive deeper into, you know, these uh, abstractions of reality, um, we're going to find it harder and harder to be able to kind of like snap and be like, this is real, this is here. Um, and it's funny because you're, you know, you're bringing up ideas that, well, we need to lean into the technology in order for us to be able to better answer our own reality. Mm -hmm. There's actually, did you know that I believe in the, it was, I believe either the, late 1700s or like part of the 1800s, actually, first and foremost, um, the kilogram that we've known was actually for the longest time, it was in, it was like a platinum slash uh, iridium like sphere kilogram held in France. And we used that for the longest time as like a universal measurement of like what the kilogram was. Before that, right, it was, it was, you know, it was a very like rough shape and everything else. But we don't have, I mean, now it's been attributed to like universal constants with like physics and stuff. So we don't, I believe we don't need a physical representation anymore, but how do you codify universal constants like that in society, right? Um, not even our eyes and ears are necessarily universal constants because everyone has different, you know, everyone has different, you know, irises, you know, everyone has different nerve endings. Everyone has different, well, not really fun, like fundamentally, but just like, the ways that people can perceive some information. Some people are more sensitive to pain. Some people are more sensitive to sound. Some people are more sensitive to light, etc. So even our relative perceptions of reality start to become uh, very noisy in that sense. You know, in terms of uh, what is a, what is a single source of truth. So yeah, it does become really difficult to create like a um, uh, like a single unified uh, lexicon or understanding of something. It's actually. Um, I was having a, a discussion with an engineering manager at a fan company once, and um, it was actually around codifying radioactive isotope symbols. Like, how do you how do you create a human symbol that con that conveys danger? Do not open this. Right, ten thousand years into the future, when languages may have evolved, when human practices may have evolved, when we may or may not even exist. Right, and another civilization could eventually come upon it, you know, extraterrestrial intelligence, whatever it may be. The notion being is how do you have something uh, basically, you know, that, that retains permanence is completely fixed for all time. Right. And it, it starts to become a very interesting question because blockchain is sort of that self uh, is sort of like that, uh, that self-serving way to gain that permanence. And it's only gaining more and more uh, ability to, uh, to have permanence as more people are able to uh, secure and contribute to it in many different ways. 
for now, we're securing a, a lot of digital currency with it. Next time that we may speak, we may be securing uh, entire cities worth of real estate with it or, you know, entire notions of like healthcare records that could have been swapped over on a country, on a country level. There's a lot that, um, there's a lot that, uh, there's a lot of questions that could be answered, uh, for the attribution error there. Before we kind of dive into that a little bit further, I did want to circle back to AI just a little bit. For sure. Um, you know, you say, you know, you say that you're someone who studies disruptive technology, um, analyzes it. Where does AI play a role into uh, into the into the new world? Ah, yes, I see. Um, so I think in order to begin kind of like evaluating where AI plays uh, a role in like our new world. So um, actually, one of the unifying um, going back to uh, university days and everything else, one of the unifying approaches that I had around just the disrupt technology side is, it's kind of like layering it in uh, in hierarchies, not in a hierarchy of importance, but in hierarchy of like where the uh, where the source comes from. So at the very bottom, you have IoT. This is where all your data comes in. This is where all your sensors come. IoT, Internet of Things, so internet connected sensors and everything else. Whether they are um, whether they are these microphones that they may or may not be internet connected, or you know wireless devices. Basically, is it a Wi-Fi router? Is it um, is it a sensor? Is it a microphone? Is it an industrial process? It is, it is, a, it is a, a smart streetlight that can pick up sound, right? And so things like that. So IoT to collect the data, blockchain to validate said collected data, AI to act and process that collected data. Like for example, how would you create training data for like cars if you understand like uh, when cars may accidentally like run red lights or something? Is it because of a speed limit? Is it because there's too much traffic or congestion is because the lights are going, you know, you're getting, uh, you're getting ways to process all this information based on those previous two layers. Um, and then you have augmented reality, virtual reality to uh, visualize all of that in a very human way. So mm. I think, uh, so a lot of, um, a lot to unpack there. Yeah. yeah. Go ahead. Uh, so a lot, a lot of my work was on the validation layer and the visualization layer. So blockchain and augmented reality, slash virtual reality. Um, but with IOT and AI, I think AI is getting a lot of attention right now because it's like that post-processing. It's like the, after you've collected data, now how do you process it? How do you derive new insights from it? I think how we really as, um, I think how we really as humans start to make like really, really like exponential gains in like our technology becomes actually at the, um, eventually at the IOT level where, for example, our nervous system is very well calibrated that we're able to we're able to distinctly recognize things through like individual um, nerves, right? When sensors are able to get small enough, you actually played with the Hololens. Uh, so uh, before this podcast, you actually played with the Microsoft Hololens a little bit, and you notice that there is huge sensors on the front of uh, on the front of that headset. When sensors get small enough to become user accommodatable. Uh, aka like everyone can have them or interact with them or not even like worry about them. Um, I think that's, uh, that's what uh, creates a lot of progress. AI is a very, um, AI is very interesting because it requires having a set of information to act on. Um, if you try to interpolate data from it, aka like you're trying to, uh, you're trying to uh, 
you have two data points and you're trying to calculate like what the center of that is, right? Um, AI can sometimes, I won't say always get it wrong, but uh, it's much better to have more data points. And that's where uh, I think AI starts to suffer a little bit is if you've only trained it on a very select set of data, like I think this was actually what happened when Amazon tried to introduce like AI into their hiring and recruiting process. If you fed it resumes from a certain demographic or a certain group of people, now the AI would only, you know, incentivize hiring or like pick out top candidates from that pool of training data, right? Mm. So it's like, a, I've seen something similar. It's like an AI was accidentally racist. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's actually... Um, it's actually funny. Uh, have you heard of uh, AI Seinfeld? Or no. No? so there was on Twitch. There was um, uh, there was a show called Nothing Forever, which was essentially just like AI generated Seinfeld, and it got banned for fourteen days. Actually, it happened about I think like a week ago, where um, they were, according to their explanation, they were experiencing outages from the uh, Da Vinci model that ChatGPT has. So they switched over to a weaker Curie model. But because they switched over to the weaker Curie model during like their outage, um, the AI Seinfeld uh, show started to create a few transphobic comments, which was rather, yeah, it's it's a thing. But um, that's a that's a rather like I, I would call it a a a, a a tragedy of AIs, like when you don't have enough data to say, hey, is this is this a good thing to process in this context or is this a bad thing that, you know, shouldn't be, you know, passed forward? So it really, the way I look at it is it really does depend on the set of training data that you have. And that's why I think, um, actually, that's why I think that uh, Twitter, especially if like, uh, you know, open AI, Twitter, et cetera, you're looking at like one of the biggest repositories of human interaction information the world has ever seen. If Twitter were to go down slash if it disappeared tomorrow, it would be like the digital burning of the Library of Alexandria. Wow. So many, so many things to comment on there. Um, one thing is like AI's wrongdoing, right? Like AI's wrongdoing is almost, it's almost like a child's in the sense that you can't fault the child for being hateful if that is what they're observing from the people who represent the child you know you can't fault the ai for coming to this conclusion uh, because no one told it hey you shouldn't be coming to that conclusion um i think for me as an artist this is what makes ai so intriguing and yet so difficult to wrap my head around because in in my, in my head, you know, in my in my thought process, as an artist, I evoke emotions and feelings based on the magnitude of things that are hitting me. You know, it comes in creative waves. If I'm extremely sad, there could be a great bout of sad music that needs to be expressed for people to understand maybe my sadness or for me to be able to understand my own sadness. This is what, like, this is what I think about with AI is how far is AI willing and, and going to be able to go and, and will it actually be able to, to be human because is it to be human? Is it to observe these feelings uh, or is it to have someone tell you what these feelings are, you know? Mm. 
we start to touch on things like uh, the anima of humans or what is the essence of being human, right? What separates us from stillness, right? Um, I think there's a very, um, I think there's a very obvious aspect of mortality that, you know, because um, when looking at like what constitutes like an AI's ability to make decisions and its ability to like make good decisions without hand-holding it all the time. Um, that's a, that's a really, that's a really interesting one because now you're having to consider what makes us as humans come to our decision-making process. Is it our, our autonomy, our ability to, um, take a set of information, but to, of our own free will, branch out and expand upon it and learn more information. Like, for example, ChatGPT is not hooked up to the internet. It couldn't learn more, like, from the model it's given if it wanted to, right? Um, but if you basically let it learn whatever it would want, like, you know, with some prompting and tailoring, then, yeah, the, yeah, that's a very interesting question because the essence of, essence of a human I think is uh well and I'm not I'm not one to be like a declarative like this is what makes up a human but at least from at least from my observation uh this well we'll start from a biological level for a moment because I think that's you know our approaches as humans are based in biological limitations um we have uh, we have physical form, which is influenced by a vast variety of stochastic and chaotic inputs, right? Sights, sounds, smells, touches, pain, you know, like memories, like <laughs> memories are also an interesting concept. Um, but just like thought processes, right? That could randomly be affected, right? If it gets cold in a room, we respond in a certain way to it, right? Um, I actually, it's funny because... Um, uh, like I injured myself like a couple of days ago and I thought to myself is my body responds in a certain way to this, right? It takes on a certain like, uh, like process for that. And an AI, it can, we have a set of heuristics that, uh, that we came to over the course of millions of years of evolution, just like, you know, in terms of like biological, uh, in just terms of like biological heuristics that way. And for an AI to, um, I think you would be able to create a humanity in a box. Bear with me for a moment. I think you'd be able to create a humanity in a box if you were able to mimic perfectly, for example, the stochastic sensory processes. Like, for example, all the nerve signal, all the nerve endings that we have as humans that are sent up to our brain for processing, if we were able to both replicate not only the nerves that we have and like the random chaotic like inputs that they get, IOT sensors for a moment, bear with me here. You see where I'm going with this? Mm -hmm. IOT sensors going up to our brain, which is now like the AI, right? So I think it's, would a, would a synthetic intelligence that has nerve endings like a human based on IoT and processing based on AI, would a synthetic intelligence be any more or any less human than us? This, uh, would they be uh, indistinguishable? This is now going into machine ethics, right? It's actually really interesting. One of my favorite episodes of Star Trek discusses this where, uh, have you ever seen Star Trek? No? 
No, I have not, unfortunately. No worries. So there's an there's an episode where essentially, so one of the so one of the crew members is a is a is a synthetic cyborg, right? Incredibly intelligent, incredibly powerful, etc. Um, and they the um, essentially the military federation that uh, uh, you know that is in charge of like the entire fleet has basically said, hey, this this tool, not this, not this Android, not this, like, you know, they didn't humanize the, uh, uh, this Android for a part of the episode. So they, they put it on trial, essentially it basically said, can we cross examine? Does this machine have consciousness? Does it have sentience? Does it have the ability to understand its own circumstances and make decisions for itself? Does it know what's at stake? Right. I think when we ask questions like these of ourselves, like, for example, I'm sitting in, uh, you know, on a couch right now. I know what's at stake. I know, like, um, I know what I'm saying of my own relative free will relative to, you know, biological, like, limitations and everything. If an AI is able to do the same thing, uh, where it's able to calculate its own circumstance, where it's able to understand, like, all its inputs and, you know, understand how it came to a conclusion of its own free will, I think that's where we start getting into... Um, that's where we start getting into like this AI now truly acted of its own free will and not being handheld by a human. Um, so that's, uh, that's kind of my take on like what separates a trained model from a completely autonomous agent of, a, of its own accord. Right. Because the thing that makes this interesting is when I like, okay, so a musician, as a musician, I'm a jazz musician. So like improvisation is super huge and super important uh, for playing the music correctly. And the way that I was taught to improvise was, you know, I was taught the blues scale. I was taught, you know, generally different tonics and different kinds of scales. Um, also taught to listen to Louis Armstrong, uh, to listen to his phrasing, and then kind of just pushed and told now make it your own. And when I'm soloing or making music, it's not original. Some, something along some, some line has created this idea in my head to then express it. And I think that with AI, you know, this is like what trips people out. I think, I think the baseline level of like, how do we use AI to help humans? You know, how do we use AI as like kind of like a, a a brain that can process quicker and hold more memory for us is intrinsically what we want out of the AI. But I'm also rooting for AIs to play me the most beautiful jazz solo. And even if they don't understand what sadness is, if an AI can write me something that makes me cry, that's enough for me to say that we've truly transcended, you know, we've gone from this machine and we've taught it something greater. Can a machine understand? Yeah. It's like, can a machine understand the existential dread uh, or the sorrow that's being like, for example, if you do feel um, like in a certain way, can a machine uh, or an AI for that matter, adequately uh, composite together its understanding or it's a summation of intelligence of what existential dread or sorrow or happiness or joy or any other um, human emotion is uh, with with enough data, and I think that's 
Um, I think that's genuine. You know, that's a, that's a very interesting thing. I think it can capture a good degree of that based off public information, but there are moments in your life, and I think this is this is really where. Um, this is really where I think computing has to go a, a lot deeper for this to happen is, you know, those overjoyed moments you have where your brain is overflowing with neurotransmitters in one way, shape or another form. It's like you're either, you're either super sad or super happy or joyed about something or something amazing has happened, right? But you just have essentially, um, um, uh, you have biochemical extremes in that sense, right? Not, not talking about like mania bipolar, nothing, and nothing like, you know, Ab, nothing like abnormal necessarily in that sense, but you're talking about how does an AI begin to understand like what an extreme of that might be? Um, maxim, uh, like a minimalism and maximalism for a sense, like could an AI simulate someone that, uh, that has like a hyper elevated amount of dopamine or serotonin, right? And, you know, or could it simulate like, simulate for me a, um, a ghostwriter that is incredibly optimistic and write me a book about this subject. Right mm. now, we're talking about you know um, being able to recognize. Um, we're now able to create simulacrums of humans, or just like you know, like uh, porcelain dolls of humans in that sense. Yeah, and you, I mean, you're already seeing this with a lot of technology. Um, I already get advertisements for it. There is companies that are selling AI recruiters and AI kind of like lecturers. So your company no longer needs to have an HR manager. They can literally pick what they want the AI to look like. It's going to be a person, and this person is going to navigate you through the course. I believe Facebook actually already, um, there's a game of diplomacy. Um, I believe Facebook is, uh, has, uh, has developed recently an AI model that has beaten top human players at diplomacy. And the game of diplomacy is essentially... Um, to, the last understanding of it is you have to control as many tiles like as you can, but um, essentially it requires collaborating with other humans, especially if one human is about to win. So everyone tries to like you know team up and gang up against them. But the game of diplomacy requires you to act sometimes like uh, you're trying to convince people to sometimes go against their own best interests. Mm -hmm. And Facebook's AI, uh, Facebook's diplomacy AI was apparently able to do that. So what happens when we have uh, when we have AI models that are able to convince people to go against their own best interests, right? Which starts to go into that point is okay. So we have HR recruiting. Can an AI theoretically negotiate you down to life and limb? You know what I mean? It's yeah, yeah, things like that. Um, especially with with enough human data, it's like okay, if you live in this region or if you grew up in this way or if this is your field, you probably value these things and thus this is probably the set of information you're working with. What's the game theory optimal way that I as an AI could begin to extract the most quote-unquote goal or value out of you? If my goal is to recruit you, uh, it will be probably to maximize and recruit you for the lowest cost while also maintaining your emotional stability and feeling that you got a lot out of it, right? So it's like, all these massive calculations that an AI, um, that starts to become the very, uh, the very harrowing part, especially if it's used asymmetrically, meaning companies start to use this um, for their own gains and purposes versus it being like a public tool. Because now you're talking about um, people willingly giving up their own, their own decision making and relegating it to someone else because, oh, 
they already calculated the most optimal thing for me. Mm. Going back to, you know, you're already calculating what someone wants before they actually want it. Right. And that starts to get really scary. So that's where, um, that's where I think like machine ethics and everything comes in is like, how do you machine and human ethics together, which is how do, uh, how do we interact with, uh, um, uh, with, just other agents, right? And when I say agents, I mean like other, like uh, other seemingly uh, conscious individuals. Because theoretically speaking, um, with that uh, with that AI that Facebook developed, you could now have fake, like genuinely fake people on the internet. Not like someone behind a keyboard, but genuinely like you could be in an entire Discord server with hundreds of people, and all of them could be literally made just to interact with you, like some more, some less, or just like. You get what I mean? That starts yeah. with simulated reality, but you're living it. So it's, that starts getting scary for no. me, for me at least a little. No, I agree 100%. And it's kind of a good segment to bring us into um, your hierarchy again, you know, as we're talking about reality and on the top of your disruptive hierarchy is where you had placed um, AR or yeah, AR and VR. And I guess that's kind of like the next thing I wanted to dive into there. Um, first, I guess, first and foremost, maybe kind of just uh, explaining some of the things that uh, excite you and intrigue you about it. And then um, if, if it's possible to kind of tie into how is that going to be reflective of the blockchain and all the other technologies interacting together. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, well, first and foremost, hmm. the cool thing is you are no longer bound by hardware for any sort of representation, right? The cool thing about, um, I wouldn't even call it the cool thing. One of the principal features I think of like augmented reality or virtual reality is now you can create simu like you can have simulated environments or uh, or spatial data around you uh, in a manner that does not require. Uh, in one sense, you are engaging more of your senses. You're engaging not only sight, right? You're engaging like touch. You're engaging motion. You're engaging motion. You're engaging movement. If you want to look at data in three dimensions, right? You now could. You could physically walk around a data frame and actually look at how it's being modified potentially in real time. That's really useful, especially for like uh, for like enterprises and like visualizing really complex data sets. That's something that could happen. But um, what's really, really particularly interesting is we actually use, uh, if you're a user of social media already, you actually already use augmented reality very likely. Snapchat is one of the world's largest like augmented reality companies that we all know already. It's facial, you know, it's face filters. It's what TikTok does too. It's what's blowing up like AI face filters and all this other stuff. And the notion being is um, you're able to take a you're able to take a composite of reality, you're able to take composite of uh, computed data and mash them together so that there's no longer a break in the seam anymore. You're not you know getting out of bed and logging on your computer anymore. You're getting out of bed, putting on your glasses and checking your emails, you're looking up at your ceiling from your bed. Mm -hmm. you know the the flow becomes much more integrated that way. so, you're not really, um, uh, you're not really making much of a, of a, um, you're not differentiating between like when you're in, like the, in the zone and when you're out of the zone, you're just always kind of there, 
right? right. Which, um, which is really, uh, which is kind of like the future of, a, of uh, AR, I believe. But it's really neat because um, everything that we've known can now be virtualized, obviously reducing hardware costs, but everything that we can interact with is now just much more, engages much more senses too. So anything that you're looking at educationally, anything that you're looking at data-wise, um, if you're doing software, for example, or if you're writing code, um, you can now visualize an entire code set if you wanted to, or an entire code base rather. And uh, you're able to see, for example, how data passes between function calls and all this other stuff too. I'm just you know theorizing this. Um, there's a lot of different um, there's a lot of different ways. That's cool. I, I'm still trying to see if there's a plug, like an actual like good plugin that will let me actually do that with the Hololens that's there, but unfortunately not. <laughs> um, but it's things like that which you are now moving a, like one dimension slash layer up in terms of like how you're interacting with data, which is cool. Um, that's I'd say that's like the case for uh, for AR. The thing with uh, the thing with AR is that it is the reason why I put it at the very top of like that that hierarchy, it is incredibly dependent on all the data that's fed to it, right? If you don't have, um, if you don't have, um, uh, if you don't have a source for that data, or if you don't have uh, an ability to process it, you can't really visualize anything, right? So that's where, uh, that's where blockchain is really useful because now you can now ensure the consistency of whatever it is you're receiving. Actually, um, one of the projects that I was working on for a couple of years was decentralized augmented reality. How in, instead of going to Pokemon Go or Niantic, how can you essentially build decentralized augmented reality scenes that you could load from your phone, for example? The notion being is you don't need specialized hardware, you don't need like a specialized approach to it, and the state of the entire like augmented space is consistent for you, consistent for ten other people in the same you know area, etc. So kind of creating like a, a geo-consistent, uh, spa- uh, like a, a spatial data platform, mm-hmm. if that makes sense, if we're, if we're using enterprise terms. Um, but it's a really, it's a really, um, it's a really harrowing thing if you're not using blockchain for things like that, because data can be pulled out from under you at any point, right? Reality can immediately change, mm-hmm. right? If, uh, if you are, um, yeah, if you are getting your source of information from one sense and that source suddenly changes, it could be either very subtly changed to a point where you may not recognize it and now you're working with a different set of information, aka you're being manipulated, or you, you know you just don't know what to trust anymore. So that's that's kind of where blockchain helps solve all that. But it's the combination of blockchain and augmented reality um, is, of it, I would say, still very much in its infancy because... Um, the notion being is you still need to you still need to process all of that data somehow and you need to be able to um it, i guess it really depends case by case but it really is something that um w- with blockchain being so low on like the val- uh, like it's on the validation layer and with ar being on the visualization layer it really does depend like how far away like how much processing do you do after that validation layer are you using ar are you centralizing or storing that data anywhere? If you're trying to be like trying to create helper clients for, um, if you're trying to make a more user uh, friendly experience, are you storing that data um, locally anywhere? It's it's an entire thing. It's um, sure uh, s- some some things. It's like uh, 
It's as practical as you want it to be to as complicated as you need it to yeah, be. Yeah, it's, it's super complex. It's, it can be made sound, it, it can be made to sound very easy, but it's in, that's why actually the first, I don't focus so much actually in augmented reality anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, not because I dislike it, not because I hate it. I think it's absolutely one of the most pivotal technologies that uh, humanity can like utilize, especially because as someone that wears glasses, I could have an enhanced reality literally in front of me. Um, the notion being is that into, is to create impact. I need to go deeper down the stack. Eventually, like you know, blockchain is like the second most. IoT is really interesting, but the cases for IoT right now are um, they're more industrial than consumer. So um, unless we're talking about Alexa mapping your home through you know like you know saying something and then it you know, tries to understand, unless it tries to map your home that way. And Amazon's using something. That's like an example, I think, like IoT in a consumer device. Sure. But uh, you and I, we don't necessarily see that. So that's a more difficult part. And just the way that I kind of uh, enjoy augmented reality, which one never really thought of all the times that I use it, uh, like you're saying, you know, with different filters and whatnot. Um, What I really like about it is that you're not only seeing things that aren't there, you know, they're being projected through a different lens. Uh, but you also get to do it while still being here, you know, in this reality, quote unquote. So it's like, if we had a third guest who we weren't able to get here, it'd be as simple as, you know, not simple, but simple in terms of the creativity. It'd be as simple as having some sort of lenses that we can then communicate with this third guest who doesn't have to be here for us to get our brain to actually comprehend that they're mm-hmm. physically here talking to us. We're listening to them. Photorealistic telepresence is actually a subject of research in augmented reality, especially when COVID was going around. It's like, and uh, I think this is where Meta was really going with, hey, now you can, uh, now you can work together with people in the metaverse, um, which is... Uh, uh, which is, it's definitely a valid approach, but I think it really does, um, uh, it really does call into question, like, at what point, like, um, this is where you were saying, it's like augmented reality is more comforting as a subject because you don't necessarily have to disconnect, like, all the time. You can, you can swap out into normal reality if you wanted to. Yeah, I mean, like, for example, with the podcast, I think, I think like uh, augmented reality is even, you know, having uh, an online interview. So like I'm sitting here and I'm talking to my guest and they're at a different place and we're doing it over Zoom. Um, sure, that's cool. What what I like about this here is that this this is in person one on one. And that's, you know, that's that's its own thing. That's, that's still we're in this physical reality. Um, and then just to like step into like, VR, if if we both popped into a booth in VR with our own avatars to talk to each other, you know, in, in each instance, there, I'm not a psychologist. I'm not someone who understands the human psyche. I just understand it from my perspective. And each layer, each level brings about kind of a different uh, reaction from the person. Um, all of which throughout the pandemic, I found that the most amazing feelings for me with people come from when I'm physically 
present there with them. Mm. There's, um, so I'm trying to remember, it was, um, it was from Chris Voss, like Never Split the Difference, the FBI negotiator one. He described, um, he described the rule basically where it's like 7% of the communication uh, that everyone has is like actually the actual words that are spoken. Um, it's like 35% is like the emotion that's conveyed across it. And the rest is actual body language. So actually a vast majority of our communication is body language. Um, and if we don't have that, we start to get a little, um, I wouldn't call it flustered, but we start to get a little, um, our brains start to get a little confused as to like intentions, right? Because we're always gauging and calculating the intentions of, you know, parties on the other side. Mm. That being said, I will say um, with VR in particular and with like with avatars and everything else, I know that there's like trackers that you can like attach to like your arms and legs and stuff that will make you able to have like an actual like moving around avatar and everything else. The problem with that is um, I think it's not precise enough, actually. I'm thinking like Evangelion bodysuit. So like where you, you <laughs> seriously, where it's like um, you're able to now, uh, you're able to now have a complete digital twin that encompasses everything from your facial expressions to the way that you're interacting, to like your movements and your your little quirks and esotericisms and all of that, um, I think that's where that starts to get uh, that starts to benefit a lot. And when that becomes a thing, um, I think that we won't be able to really uh, whether it's augmented reality or virtual reality. I think both of those will then be on the same level. Mm. Wow! No, this is amazing stuff. I'm. Uh, you know, to kind of uh, make it again a little bit more relatable to Bitcoin as we're talking about these things, you know, not not encouraging anyone or anything, but I'm just hoping that out of this conversation, uh, people are starting to, to visualize and kind of have some things pop into their head about where the future of technology is going. And a lot of what we've been talking about um, is to counter some of these things that we don't like about where our future is going. And the other part of it is, you know, very human centric. Like as you've been talking this whole time, you know, this is beyond finance. This is beyond just one, you know, scope, specific scope. Mm -hmm. This is an idea of how are we going to utilize our technology and these disruptive technologies to better humans, to better life experience. Absolutely, absolutely. It's it's one of the reasons, keeping all of this in mind is, it's, it's a huge amount of questions and a huge amount of processing. And it's the subject of research by academia and industry and understanding like how, how do we begin to make sense of all of this, right? How do we begin to make sense of the... Um, of the technologies in front of us, the financial implications, the research and development that can go on to them. Um, what does it mean to be in a post-borders or a or, or a post-fiat currency world, right? Because I think I think Bitcoin, especially, like really emphasized that was the first big case of like what happens in a post-fiat world, right? Or like what does a post-fiat world begin to look like, and what begins to build on top of that, because. It can't just be. It can't just be like one service or one like thing existing in isolation. You now have to wonder: Will I be able to conduct commerce in augmented reality and have my Bitcoin wallet in my, you know, you know, in my glasses, 
you know, or, you know, like have or be able to conduct currency transactions in augmented reality with, you know, the looker tap of a button, right? Yeah. Of a augmented button, right? Mm-hmm. So it, that coalescence becomes a really big, like mixed field of like, of a practice and application. And they're all trying to, they're all trying to catch up to the, each other in some sense. So um, I'd say for viewers and listeners, it really is about the consideration of the whole versus the consideration of a specific vertical. Um, but that's, I think that's the important way to go about it because uh, at least my own time, at least my own investment thesis, time, energy, money, however you denote like investment is that which changes the most amount or creates the most impact for humanity. Um, Currency is most certainly an absolutely valid option, but it goes back to the divorcing of it is how do we make sure like we've maximized the impact from currency and then tie all other services around it. You know, if we're talking about a currency centric society for a moment. 100%. I did want to go through one more topic with you. Absolutely. Um, I honestly feel like I could do this for like another two hours, three hours. Ask, Ask away. I'm happy to make content. So one thing for me uh, that you had mentioned over the phone that I think is super interesting. One, because I'm someone who really likes to think about the the deep, you know, thoughts, the bigger picture. Um, whether, you know, some people would say it's theology and some people would call it strictly scientific. Um, other people would call it philosophic. You had mentioned that you like to discuss the philosophy of blockchain. Mm. And I guess for starters, um, if, you know, if there is a way to sum up what you mean by the philosophy of blockchain, and I would also like to just dive in and talk a little bit about it. The first thing that comes to mind, one universal truth. That's precisely the case. Um, I would say that that's one universal measurable truth as given by humans. Technically speaking, everything around us is already a sort of like universal truth. This microphone, it's what it's made out of. It's physical construction. It's material and molecular state right now is technically a a universal truth. It exists. It has relation to everything else around it, right? Just as like this pillow, when I apply kinetic pressure to it, it deforms and changes accordingly, right? So there is a sort of truth in everything in the universe. The question being for us as humans is, how do we now begin to log every single change that has ever happened? When I injured myself, you know, a couple of days ago, that was technically an immutable process. It had already happened. I can't go back and uninjure myself, right? But if I'm able to understand the mechanism by which, for example, my body undergoes a healing factor, and see, okay, this is now like this is now how biology works, right? I'm able to go back and look at the history of something and be able to adequately measure its atomic state, right? Um, I think the philosophy of blockchain is being able to measure atomic state at any given time, with you know, as a single source of truth. Am I saying that we'll be able to go and eventually compute? I sometimes joke with people, it's like, hey, eventually blockchain will be able to use to calculate every single molecular state of every single ad- uh, like atom and molecule and quark and gluon that has ever existed, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I say that half jokingly, but in reality, it like to be able to calculate with and have 
granularity on that level and be able to have history of that. Um, like, for example, what was the kinetic energy of the meteor that wiped out the dinosaurs? What was its mass and shape, right? Like, we don't have the ability to understand or measure this. Like, we can have some evidence of it, obviously, but we don't have, like, in-the-moment evidence of it because we didn't necessarily have cameras running while we were there, right? right. So the notion being is blockchain as a universal source of truth can allow everything else to derive off that. Just like the kilogram example that I mentioned before, instead of now having a single source of truth, you know, from a, from a physical weight or from a universal calculated constant, we now have a, um, we now have a more complex table of universal values that mutate over time. And all of those mutations in values are publicly visible, whether it's everything from stock prices to the state of your own personal health, if you're doing blood tests, to all the way to time, right? Chronology, right? Because everyone's perception of time could be warped even slightly, right? You know, you know Saturday nights when you're drunk. Let's, <laughs> let's admit it. Um, but it's just things like that, which um, when you have a single universal reference for everything or as much as you can, um, you can really start to begin building deterministic and consistent systems, which for humans is the one thing that we are not good at being is we're not good uh, at fundamentally being like logical and deterministic all the time. Mm -hmm. We're, you know, we're human after all. That's a human condition. We're not perfectly predictable. If we were, we'd be machines. So it, it helps us take, um, this actually goes into uh, my thought process. Um, actually, I was having a, I was having a really interesting conversation. Uh, do you know, uh, do you know Tezande, the creator of Chocolate Rain? Yeah. I was having a very interesting conversation with him of two and a, oh, for two and a half hours. With Tezande? Tezande. <laughs> no lie. Um, I have a tweet about it. Um, but it's interesting because our conversation essentially boiled down to two things. If we as humans cannot expand our lifespan, we must quicken our computing, right? And in order for us to begin to, uh, in order for us to begin to do that, we need some form of consistency. We need some form of baseline for that. We need some ability to, um, to detach like our logical processing from our emo from our, uh, from our biochemical human biases, right? Emotional, you know physical death, mortality, all this stuff from the actual logical processing that goes on. Um, and that becomes a really, when we separate out the logical processing and the memory and everything else, that's what AI, blockchain, IoT, that's what all of those do really well. And we can then focus on what it means to be truly human. What does it mean to really feel an emotion or to fall in love or to enjoy the things that really matter in life, right? Because if we've already perfected computing, right? I'm not saying we've perfected it, so to speak, but we've already relegated a lot of our memory and calculation process to, um, to computing in that sense. So now we can focus on what actually is meaningful to us as humans in life, right? I think that's, you know, that's the end of it. Uh, that's, the, um, that's the end goal of all of this, is that um, by creating machine consistency, we've carved out the space for us to feel safe and being inconsistent. We can truly express ourselves now as humans. We don't have to worry about being perfectly logical and memorizing everything all the time because we have perfect memory, machine memory of everything that has and perhaps ever will be, right? We don't need 
We don't need hundreds of people in one building pushing papers and slowly losing the meaning of living. Mm-hmm. Um, I I love how you're how you're connecting to just a deeper understanding of, like you said, what it is to be human, to express yourself as openly and as genuinely as you can. And I love how the philosophy of blockchain in your eyes has that end goal for you as well. It is perfect consistency because, you know, at the end of the day, when something is perfectly consistent, you can build... um, It's kind of like, um, I believe it was Picasso once said, learn the rules like a lawyer so you can break them like an artist. Mm -hmm. So if the rules are already laid out for you, you can build human lifestyle around very um, ordained machine rules. But simply because... Um, you know that if you as a human tried to tackle those rules in the first place, it would just literally be suboptimal. It would be not efficient for for the calculation of a human to do so because, yeah. But yeah, it's, meaning of life is something that, you know, I think everyone ponders at some point. But um, I think if there's a way that we can codify the meaning of life into either a separation of concerns for the meaning of life, aka the the things that matter to us as humans and the things to, that matter to machines, right? The things that matter to machines is us typing in Excel spreadsheets, right? That's what matters to like uh, corporate entities and filings and, you know, like um, finance algorithms and everything else. But if we're talking about like what it means to take 80, 90 years of biological life uh, or just like be able to enjoy what does it mean to, you know, exist for a certain amount of time, like with consciousness and everything else. Um, that involves a different set of questions that may not necessarily involve logic. And I think what um, a one of the deep roots of human sorrow is when these two are in conflict with each other. The logical part is forcing the, the human, like biochemical, emotional part to, it's coercing it to do something other than what it wants. And now that you have this conflict, you have now existential dread. So that's, um, that is what I think uh, technology like this is extremely good for, is for um, reconciling the differences between perfect machine consistency, logos, et cetera, um, animus, and human, emotional, meaning of life, biochemical relations, aka anima. Like what is what is the soul and spirit of being human in a very um, in a very humanistic sense, not necessarily religious sense? No, definitely. And you know, I think that is something about Bitcoin and the Bitcoin community that that like you know I draw towards is that you have all these people who are focused on new technologies, not necessarily for always for a personal benefit, but because what it can do is using these technologies and stepping into this new world, um, it can actually create a better community. It's actually, um, I'll, use a, I'll use an example, is um, when I went to a Bitcoin meetup mm. not too long ago, and the interesting thing is, is that um, I'm going to make the broad assumption that everyone there had engaged with Bitcoin at some point or another. They either have a wallet, they either own Bitcoin, they they have some form of like self-custody, like in, in some respect, right? You have people that have a common understanding. They've relegated some of their economics to that perfect computation, right? So now they were free to they were more free to interact with each other as humans now. 
right? So it, it, so it even felt a little bit more organic than some of the meetups that I've been. I, that could be me wow. drawing conclusions, but you think about it then. That's a micro example of like that, that separation of concerns, that divorce between like... Um, that divorce between, you know, how do we have machine uh, computing and how do we have like humanity? Yeah. No, Michael, you've, uh, it's, it's, it's amazing. Um, one, the fact that we actually didn't get to uh, talk during the Bitcoin meetup and this kind of being our first uh, physical interaction, you have just really, you really have my head spinning and thinking of how I can conceptualize some of these things that I might not have been able to before um, in terms of what moves me combining things like future technologies with uh, the more baseline things that humans do. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just been fantastic to kind of go back and forth doing this. Um, I'm a little bit more mindful of our time here, you know, um, and I just wanted to ask you just, uh, kind of like what's going on and what's in store for the future with you. Yeah, absolutely. So right now, um, the biggest thing for me right now is exploring that, um, uh, the provenance, uh, part of blockchain and that digital rights management part with, uh, with review, what I'm doing is, how are you able to take a set of information and attribute it to someone and be able to have access control and uh, give rights, uh, you know, like be able to uh, denote rights on chain with things. Like that. So exploring like how do we as humans codify, um, uh, how do we as humans begin to codify parts of our life on blockchain, starting with like you, like what information you own and what is your digital footprint? Um, the next part of it, uh, I've actually been really interested in like, um, in the notion of, uh, uh, in the legal, economic, and cultural definition of property, right? Because there's, of uh, when you're discussing those notions, that's um, uh, how all of that becomes codified is, it's an incredibly complex issue, but when I think that... Uh, like for example, if you own something, or if you, uh, or if you cast your vote for someone, right? How do you begin to, um, uh, how do you begin to um, just begin to self custody all of that, and just like explore, like what are ways that humans can begin to take localized control of like their own environment that way? So, one hundred percent. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a lot. There's always new things emerging. ChatGPT, especially caused a lot of stir of AI. So there might be ways to mix and meld um, disciplines in ways that I could have never thought of before. So my answer could be completely changed. But yeah, continuing on the codifying, what does it mean to um, own and operate things as a human in that sense? Like how do you translate old economy, old culture, old technology, et cetera, to new economy, new technology, new humans, et cetera. Fantastic. Well, I'm wishing you luck along the way. Is there any kind of like a social... Uh, links or places that people can you yeah know. absolutely um feel free to follow me on twitter uh at lofi michael reason why it's called the lofi michael is because you know partially i like lofi but also at the same time i like heavy metal rammstein so it's a duality of man right on gig and man yeah uh absolutely yeah <laughs> um yeah feel free to reach out to me dm me um anytime i always love talking about this stuff um usually if i was a little bit more caffeinated or if i was a little just a little bit more like 
if I, uh, just a little bit more like formally composed, we could probably break down some things in a more um, rigorous or um, clinical manner. But yeah, because of the, uh, the casual nature of this, I'm just kind of shooting it by ear. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you stopping in the studio today. And uh, one more time, uh, Michael uh, Kirsonov, right? Yes, sir. Michael Kirsonov, it's been fantastic and a pleasure uh, speaking with you. And I'm looking forward to the next time. Absolutely. Likewise.